Well, Anne, I'd, if you don't mind, I'd like to now take some time to talk about you and your story. Okay. And I'd like to begin just by telling us about your early childhood and, and your background. Okay. And I'll, I'll kind of guide and ask well, throw some I'll questions as you go. Skip through um, that the early childhood in a hurry, but I was born and raised in the LDS Church, and I went where, to be. Where were you born? In Detroit, Michigan. My dad was in motion pictures, and he happened to be on assignment in Detroit at the time. So I was born there, and we were only there for a few more months, and then we went back to Hollywood and Beverly Hills, where I lived until I was five. And my folks got divorced. My mom uh, got a job, supported the two of us, and then we moved to Salt Lake. She remarried to a good Mormon man. and uh, What age did you move to Salt Lake? Oh, probably about eight Okay. No, I was already baptized in Southern California, so I was about nine, maybe. Okay. Between eight and nine. And then uh, when she remarried, I, we moved back down to California to a little community called Taft near Bakersfield. And I went to school, high school, graduated from uh, Taft High. Did you go to seminary? Uh, they didn't have seminary in Taft. There were only three members of the church in our whole high school. Okay. So um, we had a small branch at first when I first moved in there, and it be then it became a ward. My dad later on became bishop. Um, I got a scholarship to go to BYU, went there for four years. What, what year, just so I could, I, I, oh, okay. I, unless you're um, uncomfortable. I'd... I graduated from high school in 54. Okay. This can tell me my, tell everybody uh, my age, well, I don't wanna... which I don't care. Okay. Um, then I went to BYU and graduated from there with honors in 58. 1958. I graduated in business education. Was that pre-Wilkinson then? No, he was a president of the university when I was there. In fact, I worked for him part-time after I graduated because I got a full-time job working for the administrative assistant to President Wilkinson. And then um, when I got married and had a baby, then I just went back to work occasionally and I took his secretary's place when they go on vacation. So, so you've worked met, for, President, you've, you've met worked for President Wilkinson. Oh, wow. Yeah, part-time. Um, and he was, uh, uh, let's see, how do focused. I say Focused. How about focused? That? Yeah, he's focused. very focused. <laughs> uh, I, I don't intimidate very easily, but he intimidated me. Wow. I, when he'd call in to dictate, because this was in the days where you did shorthand, I was nervous. Oh. <laughs> so anyway, fortunately, it wasn't my full-time job, and I muddled through okay. But, um, you know, I would not want to work for a man like that as a full-time job. <laughs> I've had some wonderful bosses, and he was not at the top of the list. <laughs> but he did a lot for BYU. Oh, sure. He really did. He put them on the map, and um, some of his uh, tactics were a little bit hard to explain in my book. But nevertheless, um, I think he was a man uh, that really was the man that needed to be there at the time. But enough of BYU. Um, real, real quick, what are your recollections of your church experience growing up in the church and of your beliefs and your faith and your testimony? Oh, I was a dyed-in-the-wool Mormon, absolutely. I just thought uh, when I went to the Y that it was the most wonderful school in the world, and I was very active in student government. I was went through the Cougarette Spurs, White Key, you know, all the honorary service organizations. I was a uh, Balnorn, which was one of the prominent or fraternity, no, social units because uh -huh. they didn't have the right. others. Um, I just had a great time at college. And I, even as a child, did the church mean a lot to you? Abs well. Yes, but my mom was married to a non-Mormon at first. My real dad was a non-Mormon. So I don't recall. I, I imagine we went to church when I was really young, but I don't remember that. 
I do remember going after the age of five. I went to Wilshire Ward down in Southern California, and uh, that's the ward I was baptized in. And your experiences in that ward, did the church become extremely important to you? Oh, they'd always, uh, that's all I remember is the church being a very vital part of my life. Do you remember ever having to gain a testimony, or did was it just always there? It grew in degrees and intensity, but yeah, I remember the first time I paid tithing. I got a dime, and I went down and paid a penny and filled out the form and <laughs> stuck it in the envelope. So I've always been a firm believer in tithing. And my mother taught me, you know, wonderful honesty principles, and the church meant everything to her. She had to learn kind of the hard way, because she remember, which is amazing to me, because my mother was so strong in the church that she would ever marry somebody outside the church. And she realized that, you know, that was probably a mistake. But nevertheless, he was a good man, but it just, the marriage didn't work. And then her second marriage was to somebody in the church. Um, then we, um, let's see, after I graduated from, uh, from college, from the Y, I worked for a year. And then I married in the temple in monogamy. Was, um, Which temple? In the Los Angeles temple. Mm. And uh, then we moved to Provo because my husband hadn't graduated from college yet. He graduated from the Y and then worked on his master's for a while and got a job. Um, so anyway, the marriage was a little difficult much of the time. And so after nine years and three children later, we got a divorce. And in that period of time, however, both of us learned that there had been a lot of changes made in the LDS church. And we realized now, that... What, just so I can understand, no, Brock, what time period was this? Well, I got married in 59. So this would have graduated been in the, from in BYU the 60s, in 58. In the 60s. Yeah, yeah. And so at the time, this is before Leonard Arrington, so Joseph Fielding Smith was probably church historian. There probably wasn't a lot of church history out there. Uh, oh. Published, you know... Oh, published? Sure. Accurate, honest church history. Like, what well, were you reading? Documentary history of the church, comprehensive history of the church. Those two sets were already out there. Okay. So what were the things I you were think. reading, you and your husband? Um, a lot of it was talking to people. Okay. And then reading journals and um, just comparing. Okay, journal of discourses. You know, you read in there and they say, Oh, they're teaching Adam Michael Adam God Doctrine. And then they're not teaching it today. And then we just started comparing about the teachings of the early leaders and then the teachings of today. And that was starting to trouble you? Yeah. And, and your first Well, husband. I don't know if it troubled me. I just realized it's just like a stream of water. It's the purest at its source. So if these doctrines were once true at the at beginning stages of the church, then they must still be true, like we talked about earlier, being eternal principles. Okay. So we just began reading and talking to a lot of people and making that decision on our own, but we still kept active in the church. Making what decision? To believe in those rather than in the teachings that were contemporary. Did you have friends who absolutely who were intellectually yeah. fundamentalist at, in, in, at they, that time? You know, we weren't called fundamentalists then, I don't think. I don't recall that term being used when I was with my first husband and... That we just we just believed in the early teachings of the church, but we weren't called fundamentalist Mormons or fundamentalists at that time. That term came later. So and yeah, I don't. That term came with Joseph Messer. Well, he died in '54, so maybe it was out there, but I don't ref, I don't recall referring to myself as a fundamentalist Mormon attending, you were until the last. 15, 20 years. So you were just attending a normal ward in the 60s? Yeah, I was were... just a regular member of the church, but I did a lot of reading about the early history. 
And did so did you start thinking of yourself as different from the traditional members then? Well, I didn't know, but what a lot of them thought the same thing. Right. You know, I didn't know. Okay. I did, we didn't go around talking to a lot of people about it, but there were some that we were close to. We had kind of study groups, and then I began to realize, well, yeah, you have to be careful what you say, because if you say something about some of these doctrines in a gospel doctrine class, you could get in trouble. So, yeah, I realized there were some differences, very definitely. But you and your husband talked about it openly. To each other yeah. and to certain people. To certain friends. Uh -huh. Okay. And you had so, three, three children, you said? Yeah. Okay, uh -huh. three children. And um, then when the marriage ended in divorce, um, in the meantime we had met, like I say, we met with these other people that were believers like we were. And one of them was Ogden Kraut. And um, so I eventually became his second wife and uh, was married to him for 33 years, very, very happily. We had a wonderful marriage. Um, I was very, very fortunate to have been sealed to such a good man. So th there's a jump between, there's a probably a pretty huge emotional and intellectual jump between maybe believing that a little bit differently than the average member of the church and actually deciding to become a, a plural wife. What fill in yeah, the gaps? Yeah, it was a real decision that we had to do with fasting and prayer. Otherwise, I never would have made that decision. How that? How did? Do and like I don't know if I want to go into that. That's kind of a personal okay. thing. Okay. But I will tell you that I got a definite answer to prayer. I have never questioned for a minute the fact that I, number one, was to live plural marriage, and number two was to be in that family. Uh, never once have I questioned those two things. And so consequently, um, I felt very lucky that I was able to abide by those laws. And what what are you comfortable telling us about what it was like to live in that family for you. Well, what, what for adjustments one thing, you had to make, what was we, hard, what was easy, what was fun. Okay. We, um, the wives in Ogden's family all had their separate homes. We never lived together. There were two of them that lived together for a little while. But basically we all had our separate homes and that's a matter of choice. A lot of fundamentalist families, uh, some of the wives want to live together. Or maybe they'll live together for a while and then when they start having children and the family gets too big, they have to have separate homes just for space reasons. Um, so every family decides that for themselves, if they want to live <coughs> excuse me, together or in separate homes. For us, uh, living separately was the best. We had a printing press and ink and all the papers and a lot of company and little kids running around would have been kind of dif difficult. Um, I wanted to have more children but was not able to. And so um, Ogden and I considered our 65 books our kids. <laughs> took about nine months a book. <laughs> so um, Where did you live? Lived in Salt Lake. Here in Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. and Different did, parts of Salt Lake. Did neighbors know? Did they not no, know? No, not, not for a long, long time. We lived it very secretly, very carefully. My kids were still young. I didn't want to burden them with that knowledge when they couldn't even understand how to explain it. So we were very careful. He li didn't live in town, and so he'd come in on weekends sometimes. And we'd talk on the phone frequently and uh, get together on weekends and go visit bookstores and paper companies and start getting supplies. And was, that like that. was that lonely to not? No, I'm not a lonely person. I, uh, basically, I like my space. Uh, and I loved being with him too. So I had the best of both worlds. So you enjoyed had the it independence you? that I wanted, and I could do things with my kids one on one, or with girlfriends, or you know whatever. And then when he was there, then I had wonderful times with him. So what about your 
parents or siblings or I'm an only fam- child, okay. so I don't have siblings, and my parents didn't know until just a few years before they died, because I I realized that if I told them, it would have broken their heart, because they were very mainstream Mormons, and I knew that if I told them I was living polygamy, that that would you know be very hard for them to accept. So because they lived in another state or at least in another city. I did not tell him until uh, later on. And so how many years went by between entering and you telling Oh, about? several. It was just a few years before they died in 91. Okay. Um, so probably 20, 20 years? Pardon? 20 years. Um, I was married to Ogden in 69. 89. Yeah, 22 years. Did well, you? yeah, I was married probably approximately 20 years before they found out. Did you have any close friends that you maintained, that, you, that they were friends before, and you maintained oh, yeah. the friendships after? Mm-hmm. High school friends, college friends, they did not know. Wow. And they just thought I was a gay divorcee. They couldn't understand why I was so happy and why I didn't want to go out and remarry. And I said, my pat answer was, I like things the way they are. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I didn't tell them how they were. But uh-huh. um, I, it's just for the same reason. It's just why should I explain and go through all that when it's not necessary? So if I'd have had children in the plural marriage, then I would have had to approach it a different way. But since I didn't have to account for additional children in the second marriage, then it made it a little easier, although we would love to have had more children. What was Ogden like? Um, The closest thing to a perfect man I've ever met. Really? He was. What was his profession? He was a scientific photographer. Hmm. And... um, People didn't know out there until later on, and then they knew, but they just kind of overlooked it because there was so much immorality out there, and I don't want to say too much about it, but where he worked, um, that when he was uh, asked about it, he said, well, if you want to say something about my lifestyle, I'll report this person and this person and this person that are living or sleeping around, you know. Yeah. So um, at least he was doing it with the idea of it being a strongly held religious conviction. He took responsibility for his wives and children, and it wasn't. It was a very high uh, moral standard that we adhered to. So as far as what he was like, he was kind. He had a great sense of humor. He was honest. He was intelligent. He had a terrific memory. He was an excellent writer, uh, had a lot of friends, not many people, nobody that I know that ever met him and visited with him disliked him. He was just a very likable, friendly guy. What led to him deciding to, to practice? Just well, reading, just like my first husband and I did. Uh, he was an avid reader, and he worked down at the Dream Mine for a while, and that's a whole other story, probably don't we need, don't need to get into that, but... Uh, he knew Bishop Coyle, and um, he did a lot of reading while he was working down there. He went on a mission without prescript, which was very for, unusual for at that Church, time. For the LDS Church. Yes. So he was raised yeah. LDS. He too. no, he was a convert. Okay. He joined in his late teens. Oh, okay. And um, then just started reading everything he could find on the church and on the gospel, and um, he went on a mission, like I say, to Southern California and Arizona without prescript. Had some wonderful experiences. Uh, in fact, he even wrote a book called Missionary Experiences where he compiled and, and told all about them. Um, he uh, started teaching gospel doctrine, and because of that, he decided, like 
people were asking him, for example, well, what about Jesus being married? There was a class on it. So he thought, well, I'll put together a little something on that subject. So he did, and um, it later on became a book, and that was his first book. So because of the information he gathered for his classes, that's what got him started writing books. And then he realized as he was doing this research that he would present the information on a particular subject, like, say, rebaptism. He'd go back to the early days of the church and get quotes and experiences and th things and then follow it on through. And then people could see for themselves how it had changed and was eventually uh, given up in the church. But it still remains a law of the priesthood. Right, right. So these books that he has written have been circulated all over. Um, we get orders even today from people uh, all over the world. And you self-publish? Yeah. Uh -huh. He became a printer against his better judgment, <laughs> but he realized he couldn't afford having him printed any other way. Right. So he, um, we just started out with a little mimeograph. We started out with a ditto machine. Then we got a mimeograph machine and then an offset press and then... And so, which which of your book might be the most popular? Jesus and, was married. And how many copies do you have? Do you uh, several, thousand. several thousand. I really don't know uh, because I got it recorded, but I have to look it up. But he also wrote one on the three Nephites, calling an election, seers and seer stones, um, rebaptism, the 70s, uh, six volumes on the Holy Priesthood, different aspects of it. So kind of a, a scholar. Of, yeah, yeah, oh, definitely. Kind of yeah. So, um, did did the entire family ever get together, like for dinner or? Occasionally, but not very often because of geography. Uh, we did not all live in the same town, okay. and that was by their choice. Right. So, like once a year, or I can't not? just just occasionally, but not very often. Okay. Our family is not the ideal polygamous family that you oh pattern your life after this. I mean, we did the best we could. And, um, you know, we all realized that Ogden's first um, responsibility was writing books because that was his mission, and I was just glad that I could work with him. So we saw a lot of each other in uh, writing the books together. He would write them. I'd help him a little bit with the research. I'd typeset them, edit them. Uh, he would print them. I'd collate them. We'd both bind them. You know, we just worked together as a team, and it was a wonderful experience. So there wasn't a strong sense of sisterhood between you and the other um, wives? Somewhat, but not as much as most families. Um, and I wished it could have been different, but no, there was not. But we got along okay. It's sure. just uh, we didn't get together or have that bond that a lot of families have. That makes sense. Um, how does a... How does a how do finances work in, a, in an arrangement? Uh, you can talk about yours or, or yeah. generally. Um, well, I was always able to support myself, and I was glad for that because I didn't want to be a financial burden to him. When he had a big family like that, I just thought, you know, if I can support myself, that's great. And I graduated from college, was trained in business. I knew uh, office work. I typed theses, and uh, even during the time I was married in my first marriage, I helped support the family. So um, what that was. Of, what, what, what did you do? What kind of things did uh, you do? Office work. Office work. Uh -huh. I never had trouble finding a job because I was recommended or whatever. Like I say, I worked at home some of the time, and I was always there for my kids. Came home from school. I had part-time jobs or worked at home, mm. so my kids were not latchkey kids. Um, so you were industrious. Yeah. Well, sometimes it was kind of kind of tight, but uh, we managed, and we always had. 
you know, a, a nice clean home. We lived in a good neighborhood. My kids were well provided for, and um, they were happy, and, you know, we just had a good family. Now, in some cases, um, this is something that each individual family has to work out for themselves, how to do the finances. Now, if you have a very big family, then it's going to be very hard for a man to support the whole family unless he has a darn good job. So um, some of the times the wives will work or the older children or whatever. They just work together as a family and make sure that the needs are met of the family. And this is one of the good things, I think, about plural marriage is that a woman can have the best of both worlds. She can have a family and have a lot of children. And then she can also go back to school and get a college degree or advanced degree. She can have a career and know that her kids are well provided for because there's a sister wife that will agree, you know, ahead of time that she'll take care of the kids. And then in return, the wife that goes to work will share her income maybe with her or whatever. It just works out. So the idea with a plural family is that the family is an important unit and you try to provide for the needs and and the basic necessities for all members of the family, however that can happen. A lot of times people have a family business, you know, where they can work together and provide for each other. Did you live in fear of being discovered? No, not particularly. Why, why, how did I you played avoid? games. I don't live in fear. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I call it playing games. For example, like if Ogden and I went to the grocery store and I saw somebody I knew, he knew, and I, you know, he knew just to walk on and pretend like we weren't even together. Uh, so I didn't, you know, maybe some people would call that living in fear. I didn't. I thought it was a fun game to play. And then we'd laugh about it afterward. And I'd say, oh, that's so-and-so from the ward, you know. And so we just, um, we didn't go places where we thought we would be recognized by somebody else. You, you probably so. also tried to, you, you probably had to be private and guarded about how you talked to people and who you talked to. Oh, they just thought I was a divorced person. Yeah, yeah I just lived that kind of a life. Mm -hmm. So as far as anybody knew in the ward, I was just a single divorced mother raising three kids. So if you're comfortable talking about this, um, when did you decide to tell your children and how did you do it? And when I thought they were old enough to handle it. Um, I think my daughter was nine or ten. And I, she was a very responsible A student, and so I, I was able to explain it to her. But I said, you know, it's best if you don't say anything to anybody because it's hard to have other people understand it. And then uh, my boys just kind of gradually, when they got older, I can't remember a real traumatic time. It's just I explained it at some point. And, and they, my three kids have not accepted this as a lifestyle for them. It has not been their choice, but they have respected my choice, and they've seen how happy I was, and so, and they got along really well with Ogden. So um, it was just um, a free agency choice. Did they maintain relationships with their father, with their birth um, father? Yes, for a while, but you know, he was not the kind of dad that came around much, and he died shortly after. So um, you know, it wasn't he wasn't really a part of their life. And was Ogden in any way able to be a father to them? He was in a way, but yeah. he didn't want them to think that he was trying to take the place of their father. And so he's very careful about that, but he was very good with them. We'd go on canyon picnics together and things like that, where he just kind of was, he never was called dad by my kids. He was called Ogden. But uh, he, he did what he could to uh, be kind of a father figure for him, you know, as much as possible. 
And so it was never a traumatic, huge issue for them emotionally or psychologically at some point in their lives. I don't think so. They did resent the fact that when I became more pop, uh, public, um, when we wrote our book in December of 2000, there was a lot of media around, and they had a little trouble seeing their mother's picture in the local papers and local TV. Which book is this? Uh, Voices in Harmony. Okay. Um, that's one, I don't know if you can see that. Yeah, sure. But, yeah. Okay. That's uh, a book that the three of us wrote. That's Mary Batchelor, Marianne Watson, and myself. It's a compila compilation of a hundred testimonies and experiences that women have had in this lifestyle as a plural wife. Are these women our friends or just other? No, we sent out 700 um, different letters asking people if they wanted to participate in this project of a book that they could do so anonymously. That we realized that all the media had had for years and years was a negative, anti-polygamist, uh, people that had left with bitter experiences. The government and the media both, that's all they had uh, resource to, to report. Well, three of us decided enough. We wanted somebody, uh, we, th we thought somebody ought to step forward and show that there's another side of the story, that there are a lot of women that are very happy in this lifestyle. They chose it freely as consenting adults, and they didn't have to be forced into it as young girls. And so the stereotypes are just not true. So by writing this book and asking people to contribute to it, it was just like Christmas morning. It was amazing. I go out to my mailbox because my address was on the one that uh, the address that they were to respond to, and here would be two or three letters from these women, and they could use their initials or a pseudonym or no name at all because we knew they wouldn't participate at all if they had to use their real name. Still too risky to come out publicly. So they um, sent me these letters, and it was so much fun to compile these wonderful experiences of women that had just absolutely faith-promoting uh, experiences in this lifestyle. So after I became more public, my kids kind of resented that, and so I tried to be careful, and maybe one of the other girls would do the local media for a while, and i do the ones that uh, were out of state or out of the country. And Og did Ogden help you with that book? Was he, he so alive? He printed it. Okay. That's the only way okay. he helped, okay. but he, d he was very supportive. He thought it was wonderful that we were willing to step up and, and speak out. And so we uh, sold a thousand copies in about a month. Oh wow! So we he printed another thousand copies just shortly before he died. Mm. How did how did you avoid feelings of jealousy or envy? Well, it's easier if you live in separate houses to begin with, <laughs> and I know that that is a problem. And we get asked that question frequently: is how do you deal with that? That's got to be an individual adjustment. If you realize the importance of living this principle and you do it for religious reasons and you take it out of the bedroom and bring it into the kitchen and the living room where most of your time is spent anyway, then you that kind of helps. Fortunately, I was blessed and I did not have that, those feelings of jealousy. I knew how much um, I was loved by my husband and how much I loved him. And I... I think if a woman knows that she's really loved sincerely and deeply by her husband, she can, she can make that adjustment. And it's the key for the man to help each wife feel sincerely loved and appreciated, and that her voice counts, and that somebody, uh, if he takes another wife, it doesn't mean that he loves the existing wives any less. It's just like a mother having children. When she has a second and third child, she doesn't love the first one any less. She has a greater capacity to love them all. 
So that's the way we feel it is with a plural, um, plural family. A, a husband has a greater capacity to love each additional person that comes along. Yeah, um, I, I know a lot of men who have a hard time being a good husband to one wife. Right. <laughs> and, you know, my, my wife asked the question to me as we talked about this interview. Um, can a man really love and s fulfill and satisfy multiple women? Absolutely. Yeah. But that's pro that's but my answer. <laughs> but it probably takes a remarkable man. You it does. You not, not all men are cut out to live this. Not all women are supposed to live this principle. And if a man is that he might have joy, which is what God has told us, then I feel like uh, if you can receive joy and uh, have a true sense of happiness in this lifestyle, then great. And I truly was happy in it. I had my independence, I had my space, I had the love of a wonderful man, and uh, we worked together on these books and we got testimonies together and had a lot of friends that we could uh, talk about the gospel with and do things socially with. Uh, I just feel like I couldn't have been blessed anymore. Do you have a sense for whether Ogden's other wives also were as fulfilled and happy? Or? I, I think they basically were. They could see that we worked together so well that I think there might have been a little bit of a resentment there. But, you know, he tried to make up for that by doing things with them um, and making sure their needs were met. And, um, you know, we just tried to work it out as best we could. Yeah, okay. 